It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Bed Down Lunch Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. I know I say this every time, but I really believe in word of mouth in terms of sharing podcasts across uh, the lines of political opinions and, you know, perhaps... Uh, your general cultural allegiances. I really do believe that it actually makes a difference if people say, you know, I was listening to this thing the other day and it had an interesting take on something that I think is worth your time. And you should really listen to the 15 minute mark or something like that. I know in my life, I do that all the time. I've recommended a ton of podcasts to people over the years. I love Conan O'Brien's podcast. I love to listen to Derek Thompson, who's at The Ringer uh, and uh, does things for The Atlantic. I love to listen, uh, of course, to Bill Burr and a bunch of other comedy podcasts, including Flagrant 2, uh, Michael Malice's podcast, You're Welcome, uh, and a number of other uh, great podcasts that are out there in the scene. There's so many of them. They are variously entertaining. They are pursuits of interest. I've been listening, for instance, to Shane Gillis's secret podcast for years, which is not that secret. It's very public. You can find it easily. And it's quite bizarre. But it also was one of the things that presaged my awareness of Louis C.K.'s comeback and things like that. So look, check out those podcasts. Look at them. Look at this podcast. Look at the other Fox podcasts that we have including Kennedy's, which I appeared on recently, and including Brett Bear's All-Star Panel, which I appear on usually about once a month. Uh, and share it with your friends, because it's the kind of thing that I actually think uh, breaks down barriers and is a way to kind of listen to things that you may not agree with, and you may even kind of yell at. Uh, in my experience, I yell at them occasionally, saying, ah, that's not true, that's not right. Uh, but they're pretty good in terms of opening up your awareness of what's going around you in the world. I have today, as, as my guest, Troy Sinek. He is someone who I have known for many years. Uh, he's been all uh, sorts of uh, in so all sorts of jobs over the conservative media movement, including at Ricochet. He has a new book. It's A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Uh, he's described as being a former White House speechwriter, uh, and obviously he is. He's also a co-founder of Kite and Key, which is a digital media company, which I highly recommend you check out. It's actually got some pretty amazing videos, uh, if you haven't seen them. A Man of Iron is an interesting book because it tries to take what is essentially a very boring president and make him someone who we should pay attention to. But he actually does have a lot of relevance to us politically. He has that relevance because... He's a president who served non-consecutive terms. We might be considering something like that happening here around us in the near future. But it's also because he's someone who was very much a constitutionalist, a limited government, 
president, someone who had to say no a lot. And politically, he suffered for it. Uh, it's one of these situations where, you know, you, you get sometimes uh, what you ask for as a country, and then you are dissatisfied with it. Grover Cleveland is, as it turns out, a rather fascinating figure. And I talked to Troy Senek about his own affiliation with this, how he ever became someone who was focused on uh, a forgettable presidency, one that we probably spent 15 minutes on if we had any kind of good historical education. Uh, but he actually does draw out a number of lessons about him that relate to our modern politics. Troy Senek coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Troy Senek, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, delighted to be with you. What type of childhood do you have where you fall in love with Grover Cleveland? <laughs> I suppose that's a fair question, isn't it? Um, I'll tell you what I think the origins of this are, if I'm putting myself on the couch. I grew up in Southern California, but not the Southern California that appears in your mind when you hear the phrase Southern California. Um, a part of Southern California that looked like Arizona and culturally felt like Oklahoma. So my interest in history, which ended up feeding into my interest in politics, always sort of started with outsiders. The first political figure I can remember being compelling to me as a child was Ross Perot for precisely this reason. And it was because when you come from an area like that, I didn't know anybody who went to the kinds of schools that most politicians went to. I didn't understand this weird patois that politicians spoke in, this sort of otherworldly cadence that they developed. And so I think even as a kid, the idea of somebody like Grover Cleveland, this blue collar kid from Buffalo who sort of works his way up and then becomes this sort of shock to the political system, right? A man of the utmost rectitude at a moment of maybe the high water moment in all of American history of corruption in American politics. I think that probably explains a lot of the appeal. And then we can't discount the fact that 10 to 20% of it is probably my own mental illness. <laughs> uh, you talk about uh, going to uh, a uh, going on a pilgrimage to mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Cleveland uh, site, uh, which turns out to have been uh, closed uh, at the time. Uh, how how vivid is that memory in your experience? Probably more vivid than it should be. But the the thing that was amazing about that moment is that. Um, my mother, when we went there, they had a sort of flyer posted on the side of the wall if you wanted to contact the staff of the birthplace. And she called it. And the woman who was running the Grover Cleveland birthplace, and this is probably, I think this is 1999, this woman made a special trip to let us in. And it turns out, I found in the process of writing this book, that in the year 2022, that same woman <laughs> is running the Grover Cleveland birthplace in Caldwell, New Jersey, and is still just as enthusiastic about spreading the good news of the <laughs> Cleveland administration and his legacy. Uh, I think that Cleveland is mostly uh, viewed as the answer to uh, an, you know, an obvious trivia question. Right. Uh, and that's really most of what Americans know about him. In this book, you've tried to provide uh, a very thorough education uh, where 
I think, frankly, for most Americans, one has not previously existed. Yeah, a lot of the presidencies during that period are kind of lumped together in people's minds. Um, tell me what are the main lessons that you'd like people to take away, not just from his presidency, but his life leading up to it? Sure. I think, you know, one of the reasons that I, I wrote the book, there's actually two that are interrelated. One, I thought that Grover Cleveland, if you're a limited government conservative, or if you're a libertarian, or if you're even sort of a, a neoliberal Democrat, if there is an aspect of your political thought that is rooted in the idea of limited government and constitutionalism. This is a guy who was a real touchstone, and I sort of wanted to try and rehabilitate him in the same way that Amity Schles rehabilitated Calvin Coolidge with her biography of him. You can make a pretty good argument that this is perhaps the most libertarian president that we ever had. He's not a thoroughgoing libertarian, but he comes pretty close. And the thing that is so remarkable about that is that you know, if you really think about it, if you are a, a thoroughgoing limited government type, holding high political office, a lot more is being asked of you when it comes to hewing to your principles than is being asked of somebody who's a progressive, simply because keeping faith with your first principles involves saying no to a lot of people. And as Grover Cleveland himself says during his presidency, I spend all day saying no when I would only too happily say yes. He is not immune to the human tendency to want to satisfy the person on the other side of his desk. But there is always this higher principle at work. There is always this sense that he has, he has business to do, and that business is rooted in a sense that the American government, at the federal government rather, at some fundamental level, has to be subject to these restraints. Now, I wanted to write this not only to give people that sort of touchstone, but also to express um, a more complicated factor that, that stems from this, which is if you were to describe Grover Cleveland in the abstract, here's a guy who sort of works his way up from nothing, always conducts himself on the basis of what he thinks is right for the country, even if it's not politically expedient. A, a thumbnail sketch of this, you describe it to somebody who doesn't know who you're talking about, and it sort of sounds like what the I think most American lay people would say that they want out of a president. But... It's very important, and this is a thread that runs throughout the book, to understand that that comes with its own complications. Grover Cleveland is in many ways not a good politician, mm -hmm. even though he is in, in many ways what we'd call a statesman, because so much of the, the thrust of democratic politics is making these little concessions that lubricate the political process, maneuvering around factions. And when you're a guy who is always starting from first principles, and I'm not going to move an inch from that, boy, it becomes very difficult to do any job in American politics, let alone be the president of the United States. And this is one of the reasons why when you get to the end of Grover Cleveland's second term, he is something of a pariah within the Democratic Party. The party is moving away from him. And a lot of that is attributable to very admirable stands on principle that he made, but it's not necessarily good politics. What were some of the formative experiences of his younger years uh, prior to entering the political scene uh, that helped him form this type of stoic approach? I think it's in many ways in his DNA. Uh, he is the son of a, a Presbyterian minister 
the family has a long history in New England, and you can see that sort of rigid New England Puritanism in him from as early an age as we see anything in his hand when he's an elementary school student. He is writing admiringly about how people like George Washington and Andrew Jackson during their childhoods were dedicating themselves to self-improvement, and this is something he really latches onto. There is this insane work ethic that pervades his entire life. I mean, even in the days before he's in politics, when he's a simple lawyer in Buffalo, the normal work hours for Grover Cleveland are recorded to be 8 a.m. to 3 a.m. This is just sort of the way that this, this man lives his life. And I think the other formational factor in his youth is that when he's 16 years old, his father passes away. And at that point, he comes from a large family. He's the fifth of nine children. And at that point, he is largely responsible for the welfare of his widowed mother and his younger sisters. He ends up never being able to go to college, which he had previously planned on, and uh, spends the rest of his sort of young life before he enters into politics, climbing his way up the, the legal ladder in, in Buffalo. And there is a real sort of earthy, sort of blue-collar quality to this guy. I mean, he really does radiate the fact that even though he's, he's quite intelligent, and a lot of biographers tend to diminish that, but you get the sense, and there are moments of this throughout his, his presidency, but when he says, you know, a good American citizens oftentimes are, are people who have been in improving contact with the real world instead of behind college doors with their nose in books. And that kind of um, man-of-the-soil thing, is a constant throughout his life. He is not impressed with politics or the pretensions of politicians. You know, I think one of the other things that kind of comes with that, of course, is a, a natural skepticism toward yes. having to look up to, uh, you know, the the political as being something that maybe uh, requires uh, a, a, you know, level of uh, capability and intelligence. Do you think that when it came to politics, there were certain people who he looked to as being lodestars, as being guiding lights in terms of his own approach? You know, it's funny. The person that you see referenced the most often by him, and he's not making a lot of references to earlier politicians, um, partially because he, he just really does not think in ideological or even sometimes historical terms. It's, it's amazing how much he is transacting the business of the country as if he's a contracts lawyer. These are all discrete questions being put before him. But the guy that he hearkens back to the most is Andrew Jackson, which I yeah. find sort of interesting because there is not a lot of symmetry between the personalities of the two. There is this, I think, mutual conviction expressed very differently in their two lives that their role is to be a, cru a crusader on behalf of the everyday voter uh, as against the powers arrayed against them in, in Washington. But that's sort of where it stops. I mean, Cleveland is a guy who never serves in the military, in fact, pays somebody, which was legal at the time, to take his place in the draft during the Civil War. Cleveland is not at all combative in the way that Jackson is. I mean, he has a temper, mm -hmm. but it's not electric you know, in the, in the way that Jackson's is. And he also is not somebody who has any sort of, you would never talk about a Cleveland era in the way that you talk about a Jacksonian era because it would never occur to him to have what we'd call a vision. He, he just did not think of the presidency as a, a job that operated that way, where it was your idea to sort of rethink the fundamentals of American government. 
So that's the the touchstone that he refers to the most often. But it's strange because it's a it's mm. a fairly attenuated relationship when you look at the two of them. Uh, talk to us about his path, his sort of unique path to the presidency. How did he end up there? It's very strange. If you locate Grover Cleveland in the year uh, 1881, at which point he is 44 years old, he has held precisely one elected office in his life. He has been the sheriff of Erie County, New York, where Buffalo is located. He has also been out of that office for the better part of a decade. And he is recruited to run for mayor of Buffalo in 1881, largely because, and this is the hallmark of all his early forays into politics, nobody else wants the job. He's just the guy who's available, has a pretty good reputation in, in Buffalo as sort of a solid man of character, but not anybody that's being hoisted onto the shoulders of the electorate, you know, to be put into these offices. But because of his crusades against corruption, both in his own party, in the within the Democratic Party, and amongst the um, opposition Republicans, he goes from being mayor of Buffalo in 1881 to being elected governor of New York in 1882 to being elected president of the United States in 1884. And he records when he's being sworn into office in 1885 as president. At this point, he was the second youngest ever to hold the job. He's just a little older than Grant had been when he was sworn in. And one of the thoughts that sticks out in his mind upon taking the oath is four years prior, when James Garfield was being sworn in, James Garfield had no idea who I was. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just one of the most meteoric rises in the history of American politics. And as I say, much of it attributable to the fact that at a moment when people were taking a very jaundiced view of the state of American politics and, and corruption was seen as one of the core problems, he is seen as a man who is above all of this. And that really fuels that, that three-year ascent that places him mm -hmm. in the White House. What are some of the biggest issues that he has to face in his first term? His first term seems fairly prosaic by comparison to the second term when all hell breaks loose. The first term is largely centering around issues like tariff reform. Um, a lot of people, I'm sure, this is how I felt as a high school student on the day and a half you got about this era in American history, are confused as to why tariffs were so central to this era. And the very simple explanation is tariffs in that day were the equivalent of talking about income tax rates today. That's where all the federal revenue came from. Cleveland wants to reduce tariffs. This is a fight that goes through his first term and, and ultimately doesn't really get settled, such as the case may be until his second term. A another issue that is pretty central to his first term seems bizarre to us now, which is that Cleveland spends an awful lot of time on military pensions pensions for Union veterans who had been injured in the course of the conflict. And uh, to your point earlier, if people know a second thing about Grover Cleveland, besides him having two non-consecutive terms, they may know that he vetoed damn near everything. Yes. In his first term, he vetoes 414 bills, which is more than all previous presidents combined. But this is somewhat misleading because a lot of these are these very specific person-by-person, case-by-case military pensions. Gets him a reputation as a bit of a scold, and it's an unfair one because Grover Cleveland uh, believed that people who had served their country at this moment of maximum danger during the Civil War deserved these benefits. What drove him crazy was that a lot of these pension bills were essentially used as constituent building, const constituency building, almost like the way that earmarks are used in, in this day and age. 
And so he gets, he starts inspecting these applications one by one. And I have in the book a couple of examples of the ridiculous things he was presented with, like a veteran claiming that he broke his leg in the course of picking flowers and was thus entitled to federal benefits. So there is a principle at work here. He really wants the fraudulent cases gone because it, he considers it a matter of honor. The people who really serve their country get the get the benefits to which they're entitled, and that it not be sullied by association with these kinds of fraudulent claims. You know, the other thing that uh, I think sticks out uh, from from this moment in, in people's minds uh, is an awareness that this was a period of in, incredible corruption, but also that you know when it came to you know sort of Cleveland's example in this moment, you know he was meant to be someone who was an outside the box answer to that question yes. um, that you had tried to sort of uh, answer the problem of corruption in a lot of different ways. And this was uh, a, a kind of desperate attempt almost to uh, to right the American ship with someone who was going to come from outside the system, outside yeah. the, the normal political sphere. To what degree was that successful? But at the same time, to what degree did it set up uh, kind of the uh, disaster in terms of his relationship with the Congress? Yeah, it was successful to a degree during his first term and into his second term in that Cleveland spends a lot of his time on civil service reform, on trying to upend the patronage that dominated the federal government up to that time. But you do see in that, as I think your question suggests, the, the roots of the tension that will pull the Democratic Party apart, especially during his second term, because Cleveland has these very specific strictures that he puts around civil service reform. The idea here is you're getting people who are qualified on the merits instead of just party hacks, right? And you can imagine how the Democratic Party felt in this moment. The Democratic Party has not had the White House for the better part of 30 years. So they are in no mood to wait on positions in the federal government because of the ideological strictures of the president. And he comes up with this sort of complicated formula where he is going to get rid of Republican office holders who – he thinks are not doing their jobs effectively or are just using it for political purposes, replace them with his fellow Democrats. But he's going to keep the Republicans that he thinks are doing a decent job. And the ones who are doing truly superlative jobs, he's probably going to reappoint. This drives the rank and file of the Democratic Party crazy. And in fact, Republicans are haranguing them during this era with the taunt that, well, you got your president, but you can't get your postmaster. And this is a not a minor irritation, especially because organizations like Tammany Hall, political machines within the Democratic Party, have so much power at this moment. But it really does fuel the fire that really breaks out in Cleveland's second term when there is a populist movement ascendant in the Democratic Party pushing in the opposite direction from Cleveland. He's in the minority faction in his own party despite being president. And they already had this grist for the mill from the civil service um, conflict. And then when it gets into questions about economics and, and the monetary system and labor and things like that, it just makes it that much easier for them to look at this man in the White House and say, he's yesterday's figure. It's time to transcend this. You quote uh, an editorial indicting uh, him uh, for his loss uh, by, by concluding that he had just decided to basically not be a politician. Um, Tell me a little bit about why that loss happened, and is that a fair indictment? 
I think it is a fair indictment. Um, and this is a point that I've, I've returned to several times throughout the book is that Grover Cleveland in many moments is simultaneously admirable for dropping an anchor on a thing that he thinks is a, should be a matter of first principle and uh, is deeply irresponsible as a politician because he's, he's doing something that not only will not work to his own benefit, but will fail to accomplish the goal that he has set out. So yes, as you mentioned, when Cleveland loses his first bid for re-election in 1888 to Benjamin Harrison, it's, I believe it's from the New York Sun. They say the president of the United States has to be a politician. What do they mean by that? Well, as I mentioned, there's a big fight over tariffs in Cleveland's first term. And the relevant context here is that this was an issue that divided his own party. There was a significant protectionist faction within the Democratic Party, and there was this other faction that wanted to reduce tariffs. It's an important distinction, by the way, wanted to reduce tariffs. It's not that they were free traders. Basically, nobody in office at this point was a, was a free trader. But Cleveland decides to go all in on this as the central issue of his reelection campaign, despite the fact that it splits his party and unites the opposition. And in the serendipitous way that things tend to happen in his life, it turns out, unplanned, of course, that this boomerangs back in his benefit four years later in 1892 when he's restored to office because the Republicans get their way once he's gone, increase the tariffs, and the public really feels the squeeze. But none of this is calculated. I mean, I, I, I quote Woodrow Wilson in the book who said after Cleveland's tenure was over that none of his actions made any sense to other politicians as a matter of calculation, and that was because he simply wasn't making calculations. He was just doing the thing that he thought was right. How many times have you watched the one and only original uh, genuine, uh, sorry, one and only genuine original family band? <laughs> I have never seen it all the way through, but I know why you're asking this question. <laughs> oh my gosh. You mean I've literally had to watch that thing more than you have? <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a Grover Cleveland themed musical number in this a repeated Disney film, right? Grover yeah. Cleveland theme musical number in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those who do not know, uh, the one and only genuine original family band is a <laughs> is a much forgotten uh, 1968 Disney uh, musical, which is primarily remembered uh, not for uh, anything related to its plot uh, or anything like that, but for uh, the fact that the cast. Uh, includes an incredibly young Kurt Russell um, right, in right. one of his first uh, uh, film uh, forays, but it literally is a uh, a Missouri focused uh, 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 family band kind of thing uh, with repeated uh, musical numbers um, uh, about. Uh, the 1888 presidential election and with competing music in favor of Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland. And if you think that I don't have that music running through my head because it is an earworm, uh, oh, whenever I'm uh, talking about this subject, uh, you are wrong. <laughs> Let's get it um, over for Grover. That's, that's yes! the number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, and the Grover song is definitely better than the Benjamin Harrison song. Well, I as would one say. would expect. Yes, as one would expect. Um, but people, you can you can find it on uh, on streaming services. I'm sure it's somewhere buried in the archive at Disney Plus. <laughs> uh, if you really are curious about what it, what it is like. Uh, and um, uh, and I just will tell you, it's it's a it's a profoundly forgettable period of Disney production. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, 
the I am curious about the dynamics of of that election, and you know, was Cleveland's what did Cleveland take away in terms of his lessons learned from the loss? You know what's funny? It's entirely possible that the answer to that question is nothing. I mean, it, it is it is amazing how. And I say this with almost a kind of admiration. It's amazing how unteachable an individual this is, mm -hmm. insofar as these political factors never seem to matter. That being said, I think the people around him take lessons from this because Cleveland is uh, already sort of an antique figure in this era. He's already a little old fashioned as politics is changing in the late 19th century. And that includes the fact that he rarely gave speeches. He gives like two campaign speeches the first time he runs in 1884. And when he is running against Benjamin Harrison in 1888, Benjamin Harrison has constructed sort of a, a, a prefigurement of a modern campaign infrastructure. He's going out and giving speeches in front of his home in Indianapolis, but there is this elaborate infrastructure built underneath him to get these things out in the press throughout the country. Cleveland has nothing like this and is not really that interested in getting up from behind his desk. But by the time he runs again in 1892, the people close to him have kind of built a version of this and they built it around uh, a practice that he had while he was out of office, which was to personally answer all his correspondence. And so they figured out, well, we could get this correspondence into the local newspaper, in the market that the person writing him is from. And so by the time he runs again in 1892, as I say, I'm not sure he's learned anything, but the people around him have started to construct something that looks much more like a, a sort of pre-modern presidential campaign infrastructure, and that really helps a lot. Mm -hmm. You uh, you did have the dynamic, and this is one of the other uh, trivia questions that I remember only because of the, the 2000 uh, uh, dynamic where the winner of the presidency was not the winner of the plurality of the popular vote. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and that is kind of the other uh, little Jeopardy kind of fact uh, from that uh, that I recall. What what does the 1892 approach look like in terms of that professionalism or the, or the kind of pre-modern uh, version of a campaign? Well, you know what's interesting? So you have this infrastructure on both sides that looks more recognizable than even what you would have had in a presidential election for eight years prior. But the 1892 election, you would think, especially as we now entertain the idea of a, a replay of this, of, of, to, of a former president coming up against a, a current president, you would think that it would have been electric, that it would have sensationalized the country. All the accounts from the time is that everybody's bored by it. Nobody's mm -hmm. particularly interested. Neither candidate spends a lot of time out on the trail or what their equivalent of the trail would be. Benjamin Harrison's wife is in the process of dying from tuberculosis. Grover Cleveland is, is laid up with gout for significant parts of this campaign. And the, the issues are in many ways uh, replayed from what they were four years earlier, Cleveland just has the benefit of the fact that Harrison has gotten all the things he wanted in the intervening four years, and they don't look very good. There's a panic about the fact that the Republicans in Congress have spent a ton of money, have gone over a billion dollars for the first time in the history of the country. They're called the billion dollar Congress. As I said earlier, that Cleveland, uh, excuse me, Harrison got his got his tariffs. The public felt the bite from this. Harrison expanded out the pensions that Cleveland was trying so vigorously to police. 
And everybody looks at this and says, okay, but at a, at a moment where, because there'd been a, a pretty significant surplus prior to this, we're spending all this down on all these cases where Grover Cleveland taught us that there was this was rife with corruption. So in a weird way, and this is sort of a constant throughout his career, I mean, he runs well, but in many ways, it's it's almost the tide coming in and out. You don't see mm -hmm. a lot of his individual exertion here. It's just sort of the American politics moving back in his direction. You know, uh, I, I would assume that most Americans feel that most Americans in 1892 were laid up with gout for significant amounts of time. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of an image of the era. But his second term is fundamentally different from his first term in a lot yes. of different ways. Uh, talk to me about the dynamics, the unique dynamics that played out when he had the rare distinction of returning to his former job. Like a lot of presidents who've had two consecutive terms, the second term goes a lot worse than the first term. And, and I think most historians of the presidency would tell you that Cleveland would have a, a different and probably better legacy if he had only had the one term. Uh, much of this is not his fault. I mean, a lot of it is just issues that are beyond his control and are, are harder to handle because his own party is divided. But nevertheless, it is really rough sledding. You have a major economic downturn, which we now call the Panic of 1893, but at the time was referred to as the Great Depression. It's the biggest mm -hmm. depression the country has seen up to that point. You have significant labor unrest, partially as a result of this, uh, most notably with the Pullman strike in 1894 in Chicago, which, again, a thing you get five minutes on in, in 11th grade history. But more significant than most of us remember, uh, because it's not just a localized labor dispute, even though it starts that way. It starts bleeding out in concentric circles on both the labor and the management side to the point where a significant swath of American commerce is shut down. People aren't getting food. Chicago is turning into a pretty violent hellscape. And there is a thought, because remember, at this point, you're only 30 years away from the end of the Civil War. There are legitimate suspicions that the country's going to have another one, and it's going to be fought along class lines. And this isn't just nervous pundits saying this. This is Eugene Debs, who's on the front line of the labor side, saying 90% of the country is going to be a raid against the other 10%. And then on top of all this, in Cleveland's personal life, Cleveland gets cancer. Yeah. While this is while this is happening and has to have a secret surgery on a yacht going between New York and Massachusetts. So everything during this era, and there's a number of other things that I could mention, it, it's all chaotic. None of it is really cleanly resolved during the course of his administration. So the, the second term is really a lot of Grover Cleveland just trying to hang on, just trying to hold the line and keep things from spiraling even more out of control. Uh, the it's so strange to move from a figure who has relatively little uh, cultural cachet or knowledge beyond the you know fact that he spanked uh, Abraham Simpson on two non-consecutive occasions <laughs> um, uh, to someone as flamboyant uh, and popularly known as William Jennings Bryan, who pretty much everyone yeah. you know can can name and and probably cite a couple of things related to them if they have any kind of, uh, you know, solid American historical learning, which I know is a dubious question this day and age. Yeah. Um, how do you go from a figure like Cleveland to a figure like Brian as being kind of the, the nationally known face of a political movement? Well, as I say, by the, by the time Cleveland leaves office, 
he is really sort of seen by his fellow Democrats as, as yesterday's man. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's not just so there's a big ideological component to this. Right. Br Brian and Cleveland are on opposite sides of the, the question underlying the Depression. The question about monetary policy, gold versus silver. Uh, Brian, of course, aggressively on the silver side, and there are a lot of policy differences that we could we could go through that would explain part of it. But I think probably the bigger factor is the factor that you see repeated throughout American history, throughout American politics. I always think it's interesting. You look at every president almost, and you if you walk backwards, you can find the thing that they were elected for that was supposed to be a corrective for the last guy. You can always see that thread. And I think the same is true here in terms of party nominees, because Brian ends up being the nominee three of the next four times after Cleveland leaves office, of course, loses all three. But it's not just these ideological differences. It's a fundamental difference, as you suggested, of, of disposition. I mean, Brian, who is this incredible speaker, Cleveland's a miserable one. Cleveland does a, a tour of the country during his first term where every city he goes to, he just reads the encyclopedia entry for that, for that city. You know, Cleveland is seen as staid and fussy and uptight. And Brian is this electric figure who really feels like he's sort of pulling you by the suspenders into the 20th century. So I think it's just as much about personality and sensibility as it is about these intellectual and ideological differences between the two of them. The takeaway, the overall takeaway that you'd like people to have when they have read A Man of Iron uh, about Grover Cleveland uh, that gives them, you know, the, the thing that they want, that you want them to say to their friend at the coffee shop or the pub, you know, this is something that I learned about Grover Cleveland that I didn't know that now helps me understand a little bit more about this period of American history or, or kind of the nature of the nation. I really want to save the readers of this book from the, I think, a historical way that we tend to think about the presidency, which is that we tend to judge everybody by the standards of presidents of the last hundred years or so, and the presidency is a different office prior to that. So the argument of the book is not that Grover Cleveland belongs on Mount Rushmore. In fact, I explicitly say in the book that he does not. The argument is that he belongs in this sort of second tier of distinctive presidents who made distinctive contributions to the country and who are worth remembering. And, and I think the entire um, or the most important reason for that is because of the integrity with which he conducted himself in office. And I thought that the book was important right now because this is a moment where there is such a jaundiced view of American politics that I wanted, I wanted to remind people that a lot of the reasons that I think many of us get depressed about the state of American politics is because we make the faulty assumption that it's predictable. Mm -hmm. And the genius of the American system is that in these moments where it feels like the system is sort of breaking apart, you will get a Grover Cleveland, a guy through the side door who you never saw coming, who feels like a remedy for the malady that's at the root of the the country's problems. I just think he's a he's a deeply admirable, even if a deeply flawed figure, and somebody that I I wanted to restore to American's historical memory. Troy Senek, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I guess I'm going to have to address this just because I think that it's probably the thing that is uh, very much out there in terms of social media, and that's this uh, bizarre situation involving uh, Candace Owens from The Daily Wire, her new documentary about the Black Lives Matter, and her relationship with Kanye West, and most importantly, with 
Ray J, uh, a an ex rapper. Um, I think it's fair to call him that. He's not been someone who's put out uh, music consistently. Um, who she invited to attend this premiere at the Daily Wire. Uh, the, uh, selected theater, the Woolworth Theater in Nashville, um, where she was, uh, you know, putting forth this documentary. I wrote something about it at the Spectator. I hope that you will check it out on uh, the the issue of Candace Owens uh, doing this. You can find it at SpectatorWorld.com. Look, I am not a fan of the idea that at this particular moment in time. We should be in any way having media figures of prominence and relevance within the conservative landscape defending people who are saying explicitly anti-Semitic things. I am glad that the founder of the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, someone who I'm sure is probably familiar to all of you, uh, has been someone who has also echoed this in the uh, days since uh, some of the things came out that both Kanye West had said, uh, and then Candace Owens had defended. But that doesn't make me any more comfortable with the dynamic that we see going on within the conservative movement when it comes to embracing every celebrity who will kind of nod in your direction as being a messiah, a, a political savior, someone who indicates the direction of the country in some kind of powerful way. Now look, I am not going to say that art does not matter. Quite the opposite. Art matters more than policy. The creative works matter more than policy. Uh, culture matters more than policy. I mean, the reaction of the basic American parent to the existence of Leah Thomas is more powerful than any le legislation that has to do with trans athletes or anything like that. You will not, you know, find me of the opposite opinion on this. This is something that has been true ever since Andrew Breitbart uh, pointed it out. But it's also something that I think uh, leads us sometimes as people of the right, and I'm speaking in the broadest possible terms, you know, whether you're someone like me who's more libertarian, or you're so whether you're someone who is more of the, the I don't, Authoritarian is a pejorative, but let's say the nationalist conservative persuasion or, or anything like that. If you're anybody whose right of center rejects the left woke lie, the religion that they have adopted, then you're someone who knows that this matters. It's not something that we should pretend doesn't. People take more lessons about politics from sports radio than they do from political TV. I believe that's absolutely true, okay? It's why people got so upset about Colin Kaepernick and what he did. And they were rightly upset about that. And Colin Kaepernick's a jerk, as I've said before on this podcast. But one of these things that I think is important is not to fall into the trap of loving the people who just nod in your direction automatically. You know, Kanye West says he's pro-life. That's great. I think that's wonderful. I'm glad that he rejects the idea, the leftist idea, that it's okay to have more black babies aborted than born in New York City. That's great. That's wonderful. And then he turns around and he says, basically, oh yeah, Jews are, you know, bad people who, you know, I'm going to go death, death con three on them. I'm, I'm not sure that that was a, uh, 
a misinterpretation of his of his quoted uh, uh, audio file or something like that. Uh, and you know, there, you know, then he says this thing, this line that's leaked about a him talking about. You know, uh, well, you know, my my uh, at least if my uh, kids le- learn from Jews, then they'll get finance opinions or something like that. Look, there are not a lot of Jewish people in the world. Uh, you know, that happens after you have entire generations eradicated by a Holocaust. Um, they are not exactly a people who are unfamiliar with criminal assault, and they've been experiencing it in the past couple of years to a much higher degree than they have historically in America. Um, that's a disturbing thing. It's bad. I don't blame Kanye West for that. And I don't think, as Candace Owens has said, that he's uh, you know some kind of person bent on Holocaust or genocide or anything like that. I just think he's saying some anti-Semitic things, as Ben Shapiro identified. And what I am uncomfortable with is this idea that we ought to use these celebrities to promote a conservative culture war in a way that does not have kind of a degradation because of their own controversies that they bring to the table. Candace Owens brought, according to TMZ and Page Six and and other gossip rags, she was instrumental in bringing Ray J the uh, former rapper, the I hit it first, uh, quote unquote, uh, rapper, to the premiere of her movie about BLM. Now, I want to be clear about this. BLM is a fraud. It's a Marxist, a neo-Marxist fraud, one that has been perpetrated on the American people by the left in an awful and degrading way. Um, It's really horrible. I mean, people have been using it. I mean, one thing that's that's sort of a lesser story about this that I think should receive more attention is that places like Washington, D.C., you know, basically got away with painting BLM slogans on streets, even as crime levels went up within the black community, killed more black people, led to worse black lives. And they made up for it by painting things on streets and getting the applause from the requisite leftist media. That's something that happened across the country. It's foul. It's disgusting. It's everything that's wrong uh, with the left racist identity politics agenda today. It's something that we should identify. But it's also something that we should not in any way enable. We shouldn't turn around and say, it's okay to include these people who have done horrible things just because they happen to be black. Just because we're saying this is a prominent black rapper or this is a prominent, as, as Candace Owens has framed him, a black technology entrepreneur because he was behind the Raycon uh, uh, you know, earbuds, that uh, we should not necessarily embrace that when it comes to the kind of personalities that we accept as part of this culture war. Look, I am all about a big tent. I believe in having a big tent when it comes to these culture war issues, including a lot of people who may not agree with us when it comes to capitalism, when it comes to you know, the, the nature of higher education, when it comes to the type of, of fiscal policy that we ought to have, 
or when it comes to the kind of government programs that we believe the federal government is constitutionally supposed to deliver. What I do believe in is that the American people have the ability and the capacity to sort out right from wrong. We should trust them. We should believe in them. And we should not engage in performative, cartoonish, Barnum and Bailey antics in order to achieve the kind of attention that we want for our causes. Have faith in the people. If you deliver a powerful message about the terrible funding scandal of Black Lives Matter, you don't need Ray J to show up in order to promote it. I'm Ben Dominich. This has been another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. I hope that you will tune in when we dive back into the fray. It's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.